According to a study made by the U.S. Census Bureau, the percentage of children without father here in the United States is about 43%. It's a huge number. About 71% of high school dropouts and teenagers who got pregnant are from fatherless households. About 85% of children without fathers get involved in crime. We're, we're not talking about Father's Day today. But we are starting a new series on the Lord's Prayer. It starts with Our Father in Heaven. For the whole month of February, we'll, we'll be doing a series on the Lord's Prayer. So this is something to, to read about and something to prepare about. If the absence of a human father figure leads to negative consequences, what can we expect from an absence of God as Father? My goal in this sermon is to lay the foundation why calling God Father is essential to our spirituality. And my prayer is that as you listen and reflect on this sermon is that you will develop this desire and longing to call God Father. When you read the Bible, go to Matthew chapter 6, and you look at the title, The Lord's Prayer, uh, know that in the original, it's not there. The original Bible was written in Greek, and there's no chapters, there's no verses, there's no titles. The title, The Lord's Prayer, was put in there by English translators to help us navigate the Bible so we can read the Bible better. That's the only reason why they put it there. The Lord's Prayer, I think, it should not be called the Lord's Prayer because this is not something that Jesus would pray himself. Jesus would not pray, forgive us our sins, because we know that Jesus never sinned. This is our prayer. This is what Jesus taught us to pray. So instead of saying the Lord's Prayer, I would say that this is the believer's prayer. If you want to check out Jesus' prayer, go to John chapter 17. That is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. But but when he taught us to pray, he starts with our Father. Now, here's the thing. Why do we have to call God Father? Why not just call God King of the universe, mighty God, creator of heaven and earth? Or maybe just say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why call God Father? What's so special about calling God Father? See, before Jesus, the Israelites didn't call God Father. After the Babylonian exile and the consequent, uh, consequent invasions of other kingdoms, the nation of Israel has become too paranoid of offending God. They're so afraid that they might be punished by God again and again until the time of Jesus. And they felt that God is too distant, too powerful, too divine, too transcendent, too holy, that they didn't call God Father. They don't have this kind of concept. And out of fear of violating the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain, they would not mention the name of God. So when they read the Hebrew Bible and they come across the name of God, instead of pronouncing the name of God, Y-H-W-H, they would skip it and they'd say Hashem or literally the name because they have reverence for the name of God. They don't want to offend God. This is their understanding of who God is. God is transcendent. God is holy. They don't want to misrepresent God. The Jewish understanding of God is far removed from us. So when you start listening and reading the stories of the Bible, you start with the Garden of Eden. God is holy. God is transcendent. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they were expelled from the Garden instantly. One mistake. They were expelled. Why? Because God is holy. He lives in that place. 
Remember there was a time when Jacob, like the prodigal son, ran away from home because he stole the birthright of his brother? He ran away from home. In the middle of the night, he woke up from a dream and he said, this is the house of God. He saw angels coming up and down. This is the house of God. So he said, this place is Bethel, the house of God. Very interesting. The first thing that Moses heard when he encountered God on Mount Sinai is this. Remove your sandals because this place you're standing is a holy ground. Why? Because God is holy, transcendent, far above from us. It's the same thing that happened to the people of the Israelites when they met God. God told Moses, put a boundary on the feet of the mountain, foot of the mountains, Mount Sinai, and nobody should cross the boundary or else they will die. So Moses went up to the peak of the mountain and he met with God. And why? Because God is holy, transcendent, powerful. This is their understanding of who God is. When Solomon built the temple, put the ark inside the inner chamber, the Bible said that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The temple was filled with smoke. And they were not able to minister inside the temple. Why? Because God is holy, transcendent, far removed from us. It's the same glory that Isaiah the prophet saw in his vision. Isaiah 6 verse 1. He said, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. All the while, he, he thought that the king rules. But the truth is, it's God who rules. So he said, high and lifted up. What does it mean? God is holy, transcendent, far removed. This is the Jewish understanding of who God is. Powerful, almighty, all-knowing. There was this guy, and you know this guy, he was doing whatever that he wants, he wants to do. He's following God, he's doing the will of God, he's righteous in the eyes of God. But one day God tested him. His name is Job. His name is Job. He knows what he's doing. In just one day, all his children died. In just one day, all his properties were stolen. In just one day, he got sick. He got sick that all over his body he's got boils. Everything was lost except his wife. I'm not berating wives, okay? But that's what the Bible said. He lost everything except the wife. And the wife said, you're suffering, curse God and die. Job said, you're foolish. You don't know what you're talking about. So out of, out of this sorrow, Job kept silent for seven days. And his friends saw him. So his friends, together, four of them, went to Job and stayed for seven straight days without saying a word. They can feel the, the sorrow of Job. After seven days, Job spoke and he said, I don't understand God. I don't know what's happening. I don't know why he's doing this. I don't know why I'm suffering. And his Job's friends were so quick to say, sin equals tragedy. There's only one explanation, Job. It is because you have done something wrong. That's why this is happening to you. And Job spoke from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 37 of Job. He was saying, it's not my fault. I know what I did. I did not do anything to deserve this. I am righteous. I'm not doing anything wrong. But his friends keep on pressing and pressing and pressing. Job, it is your fault. And so there was this debate for up to chapter 37. Until finally, God spoke in chapter 38 and 39. And what God said was very interesting. He gave Job questions after questions after questions about how to run the world. 
Like, what's the measurement of the, what's the distance between the east and the west? Who placed the sun in there? What, who, who put the temperature in there? What made God put the kind of temperature in there? Who put the Pleiades and the Orion and the universe in there? What, what, what may, what's the foundation of the earth? What is this whole body of water about? Who, who put it there? These laws of physics, who put it there? And Job, uh, all he can do is to keep quiet. As if God is saying, you don't know what you're talking about, so please shut up. I think sometimes we do that. When we don't understand what, what's going through us, through our lives, and we keep questioning God and asking God, why, 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 why? I mean, look all over you. And if you cannot explain what's happening there, you have no answer. You have no business asking God why. As if God is saying, you don't know what you're talking about. God is mysterious. His ways are mysterious. The Jewish understanding of God is holy, transcendent, far removed from daily life. So when Jesus came, he gave a radical definition of who God is. So one day, Jesus went to Jerusalem. He went to a place called Bethesda. And there's this place by the pool of Bethesda where all the, the people who are sick hang out. So the lame, the blind, you know, whatever. If you are having a problem, if you have sickness, if you have disease, you go there. You hang out there because they believe that every now and then an angel would come, would would uh, touch the water, the pool, and if that happens, they, you know, they would run, they would race, and then they will get healed. So they believe that, you know, God makes miracles every now and then. And there was this guy who's been there, he's paralyzed, all over his body, he's paralyzed for 38 years. 38 years. And he caught Jesus' attention. So Jesus went to him and said, do you want to be healed? But this guy gave Jesus a bunch of excuses. I mean, nobody's helping me go to the pool. I'm here. I'm by myself, etc., etc. So Jesus said, finally, John chapter 5, verse 8, get up, take up your bed, and walk. This is interesting. I mean, there's no formula for I heal you, or there's no abracadabra. There's nothing. Just say, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And the Bible said, at once the man was healed, he took up his bed and walked. Isn't that amazing? Now, immediately you would, you would say, this is good news. I mean, this is, is awesome. And so when he was walking up and, and taking up his, his mattresses, all the people who, who recognized him saw him. He was walking. And you would think that people will celebrate with him. Yes? I mean, finally, after 38 years, this guy is walking home. He's finally healed. But there's one problem. The people around him recognized him and said, stop. What do you think you're doing? You see, there's a problem here. Because it's Sabbath day. Sabbath day is rest day for the Jews. So the people said, it is not lawful for you to be walking like this. Can you believe that? If you are the guy who's been invalid, paralyzed for 38 years, and now finally you're healed and you're walking home, and suddenly the people will stop you and say, go back there. <laughs> go back there because it's Sabbath. You have no right to walk and carry your beds. I mean, this is amazing. So they asked, who made you walk? Who, who made you sin, break the Sabbath? So this guy said, Jesus. And they went to Jesus. And this is what the Bible said, very interestingly. John 5, 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
this is amazing. And this is what Jesus said. This is his defense. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now and I am working. Now, they understand that Jesus wasn't talking about Joseph, his father, because at this point, either he is assumed dead or dead. Okay, he's not in the picture anymore. There was no mention of Joseph, the carpenter here anymore. So the people understood that Jesus was talking about God, his father, because he claimed to be intimate with God, my father. By implication, what Jesus is saying is that if you have an issue with me healing on Sabbath, you take it up to God because until now he's working. He's breaking the Sabbath. If I'm breaking the Sabbath, my father is breaking the Sabbath. You see, like father, like son. I'm just doing what he's doing. And as soon as Jesus said this, the Jews went bananas. This is what happens next, John 5.18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, there's a difference between calling God my father, that's what Jesus said, and calling God our father. I'm going to explain in a second. But for Jesus, he was being persecuted because he called God my father. You see, the Jews in the first century do not call God father because to them it's sacrilege. It's a violation of the third commandment. You shall not misrepresent God or bear the name of the Lord in vain. To them, this is too sacred. To call God Father. So Jesus gave a long response, but in verse 43, this is what he said. He said, I have come in my Father's name. What does it mean to come in my Father's name? What Jesus is saying is that he is bearing the name of God. He's representing God. He's acting on God's authority. We call this proxy. If you have been chosen to be a witness in a wedding and you cannot come, you you bring a proxy. Somebody goes with you and say, in behalf of so-and-so, I represent him. Proxy. So Jesus is proxy. He's Yahweh in the flesh. Proxy. You see what I mean? Jesus was representing God, bearing the name of God. And so he said, God is my father as a direct representation of God. This language about Father-son is, I think, best understood in the context of inheritance. And I think this is the, the best way to explain this is in the story of the prodigal son. Now, this is fascinating to me. When I was studying this, I am so fascinated with, with the connection between the New and Old Testament. I think the best way to understand God as father is if you understand the story of the prodigal son. If, if this is your first time to hear about the prodigal son, the story goes like this. There's a son, sorry, there's a father was two sons. One day, the younger son said, I cannot wait anymore. I want to party. I want to go to Las Vegas. But I don't have money. So he went to his father, asked for his inheritance. Well, it's very unnatural for someone whose father is still alive to ask for your inheritance. Normally, you wait until your father dies and then you get your inheritance. But this guy, the younger guy, said, I want to party now. So he went to his dad, asked for inheritance. His father surprisingly gave it to him. So he, he sold his property, the inheritance, and then he took his money and went to a faraway country. And then he lived a reckless life. And then when he spent all the, all the money to the last cent, he realized this is not doing any good. So in order to survive, he was employed. And his employment is about taking care of pigs. The lowest of the lowest, taking care of pigs. 
And on that moment, he realized, this is not the life I wanted. So I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to beg him that he accepts me, not as a son, but as a slave. Because slave in my father's house is well-treated, so I'm going to be there. And so when he came back home, his father saw him from afar. His father ran, wrapped his arms around him, kissed him, and said, My son is dead, but is alive again. Luke chapter 15, verse 24. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Have you ever wondered why his father said his son is dead? We know that he did not die. And yet his father said, my son was dead. What does he mean by that? What I want you to do is here. I want you to teleport from the prodigal son all the way back to the Old Testament. There's a story in the Old Testament that mirrors the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. This might be the first time you heard this, but the story of the prodigal son is the exact story of Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. So Isaac is the son of Abraham. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the older, Jacob was the younger. But this younger son is so ambitious, he wanted the rights of the firstborn. So one day he tricked his brother. He got, he got the rights, and then he ran away. He's like the prodigal son. Do you see it? What's interesting is that when he came back, he settled, and then he had his own sons. He's got 12 sons. Now, one day, uh, his favorite son, by the way, was Joseph. So one day, there was sibling rivalry in the family, and all the brothers acted against Joseph, and they mistreated Joseph, sold him a slave to Egypt. And then they came back, they went to Jacob and said, your favorite son is dead. A wild animal attacked him. He's no more. No more favorite son for you. And Jacob mourned. He lost his favorite son. He can't do anything about it. But we know that he did not die. He went to Egypt. And in Egypt, he became successful. But this is what, this is what, Joseph, uh, this is what Joseph said when he was in Egypt. Um, after this incident, there was famine in the land. And there's no choice for Jacob and his entire family but to go to Egypt to buy food. And we know that Joseph was there, successful. So when his brothers went to Egypt and they saw Joseph, they said, Whoa, this is amazing. And Joseph said, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm gonna, not going to retaliate. I will forgive you. But you go tell my dad that I'm alive. So these brothers bought some food, went back to Jacob and said, your son is alive, Joseph. This is what he said, Genesis 45, verse 28. And Israel said, that is Jacob, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Can you hear the echo of the prodigal son's father saying, my son is dead but now alive again? This is Jacob speaking. Joseph is alive. He's not dead. See, the story of Jacob in Egypt is the plot where we can understand and that God has revealed his fatherhood. What does it mean to call God father? In his conversation with Moses, God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. We know that story. But God also said something very distinct to Moses. Here's what he said in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. He said, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, 
Israel is my firstborn son. Now, this is amazing. Israel as a nation has become God's firstborn son. Now, we know that God does not bear children. So how come Israel has become his firstborn son? Now, Israel was the name that God gave to Jacob. He replaced the name Jacob because Jacob means usurper, trickster, deceiver. So he gave him another name. His name is Israel, somebody who wrestled with God and won. Israel was the name given by God. So all the descendants of Jacob were called Israelites. Now, we know that Jacob was not the firstborn. It was Esau as the firstborn. But Jacob was the one who wanted the inheritance so bad, he tricked his brother. I mean, Esau couldn't care less. He just sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. He doesn't like it. It's not important to him. But to Jacob, the inheritance was important. He wanted it so bad that he had to trick his brother. He, he wanted so bad. But you see, even if he had it, it's practically useless if he's going to die because his brother threatened him. So he ran away and then he came back. Coming back, he's, he knows that he can still be killed. His brother can still retaliate. So he wrestled with God on the way back. He wanted the inheritance so bad that he wrestled with God. He got inheritance. He got the blessing of God. Because he understood that the inheritance is not just about lands or material possessions. The inheritance is about the blessings of God that is passed on from Abraham to Isaac, now to Jacob. That is why when Jesus came, they don't have an understanding of God as father, but they know that God is sort of a father. So when Jesus came, he tried to teach them what does it mean to call God Father. So all along, the Jews understand that God is transcendent, all-knowing, almighty, yada, yada, yada. But he is also Father, according to Jesus. In the Bible's genealogy, when you read the genealogy, you know, the son and so and so and so, it starts with Adam. And in Luke, it says that Adam is the son of God. How so? Because Adam was created in the image of God. That's why he's said to be the son of God. So practically, Adam was the son of God. God was the father to Adam. But Adam, like the prodigal son, squandered his rights and rebelled against God. So he was kicked out of the garden. Again, echoing the prodigal story. The scriptures in Genesis chapter 3 sort of give us a blueprint of what's going to happen. To either, to, to the population of the people, either people will stay as made in the image of God, doing righteousness, doing the will of the Father, or they will become the image of the serpent in the likeness of the serpent, seed of the serpent. So in Genesis chapter 3, there was a prophecy about, about Eve and about the serpent, that there will be offspring of the serpent and offspring of the woman. And there will be war and struggle between these two sets of offspring. And that, and that the offspring of the woman will be in the likeness of God, doing the will of God. But the likeness of the serpent will be doing evil. What's interesting is that when Jesus came, he was talking to the Pharisees. And he was talking to them as if they're not really doing the will of God. They're not seed of God. They're not offspring of God. They're offspring of someone else. Matthew 12 Verse 33 says, 
Jesus said, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad or its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit, offspring, seed. If you are offspring of God, you will be doing good. If you're offspring of the serpent, you will be doing evil. What Jesus is saying here is that the tree is known by its fruit. And then he said, you brood of vipers. Now, watch this. He was talking to the religious leaders in his time. And he was calling them as brood of vipers. What is a viper? Venomous snake. And what is this associated with? The serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Brood of vipers means you bunch of serpents. You're doing the will of your father who is not God. You're doing evil. And Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What Jesus is saying is that the religious leaders in his day were a bunch of pretenders. They are evil and it shows by their works. Now, on separate occasions, he confronted the Pharisees and the scribes. This is what he said in John chapter 8, verse 44. And this time he did, he used a direct derogatory language. This is what he said. You are of your father, the devil. I mean, there's no misinterpretation here. This is too direct. You are your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. Now, wait a minute. So what, it mean, what does it mean to be a son? It is to do the will of the father. That's why when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. If you're a son, you should be praying to do the will of the father. But then these Pharisees, these religious leaders, according to Jesus, were doing the will of their father, the devil. Now, wait a minute. Hang on. He said he was murdered from the beginning. Was the devil murdered from the beginning? Now, watch this. Teleport again from here all the way to Genesis chapter 4. The first murderer was Cain. He murdered his brother. Was Jesus talking about Cain? Look at this. He was murdered from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. He's still speaking about this, this person. When he lies, he speaks out his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. Who's the father of lies? According to the Bible, it's the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. So that means Cain, instead of doing the will of God, did the will of the serpent. He became the offspring of the serpent. And what Jesus is saying is that those who are doing the will of the serpent is doing evil. You are not the son of God. See, Jesus is now saying that those who claim to be doing the will of God are in fact doing the will of the serpent like Cain. They may be religious, but it doesn't matter. Their works show. Jesus can call God my father exclusively because he's the only begotten son of God. And if the Jews do not agree with Jesus and persecute Jesus and try to kill Jesus because of this, then they are of their father, the devil. That's what Jesus is saying. So is it really sacrilege to call God our father? The prayer Jesus taught us starts with our father. This entire prayer, if you watch it closely, does not have the pronoun I or me. The only pronouns that you will find in the Lord's Prayer is, or in the believer's prayer, is our, we, us. What this means is that this prayer is best prayed in the context of a community. You just don't pray it by yourself. You pray it in a community. Our Father. Not my Father. Our Father. And the word for this one is Abba. 
Now, we don't understand that it's Aramaic. It's an old, ancient language, but it's Abba. But <laughs> interestingly, in Israel today, small kids still call their dads Abba. In the Middle East, they have a different uh, version of this, Abba. I have two children. One is 11 and one is 5. The younger, the 5, is loud and demanding. And you will see her with the long hair, always running around after the service. Would it be weird if two of my children would, would be on a Sunday, you heard them saying, instead of that, you say, Reverend Norbert Manzano, let's go home. That's going to be weird, right? I mean, I may be the pastor, but I'm their dad. That's weird. Lately, my daughter's been learning Filipino, uh, Tagalog words. And one day, he's, she surprised me by saying, Tatay. I was so surprised. I mean, come on, who taught you that? Tatay is the Filipino word for, for dad. See, Abba, the one that Jesus taught, is a very sweet, intimate way to call God. Not just a God who is transcendent and holy. He's God related to us. Tatay, daddy, Abba. This is the same word that Jesus taught to address this powerful God. And he's saying that although God is powerful, he's the creator of the universe, he's not far from us, he's not distant from us, he is close to us because he is our father. When you read the Bible, the phrase, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that is the language of father, a father who does not abandon his children. There's an Old Testament word for, for that. It's called covenant. God the Father made the promise to Israel and he keeps his promise. The word for that is chesed. It's faithfulness, unconditional love. He will never abandon his children. So back to the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son has already received this inheritance. And by implication, he has disowned his family. He has betrayed his father. There's really something wrong with his son. But I think Jesus, when he told this parable, he was, I think, alluding to an Old Testament passage in the book of Deuteronomy. All the while, before, when I was reading the story of the prodigal son, all I can think of is, you know, this, this story is cute. But I had no idea that Jesus was alluding to a passage in Deuteronomy about this prodigal son. And the prodigal son story is the story of Esau and Jacob. Now, this is interesting. Now, I, I think that the story of the prodigal son, the son itself, is taken from the book of Deuteronomy because it mentions the word ausotia or debauchery. Now watch this. Luke chapter 15 verse 13 says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey in a far country. And there he squandered his property. Now the inheritance property, he sold it. In reckless living. That word reckless is asotia. It's also called debauchery. What is debauchery, by the way? This reckless living debauchery was also mentioned by Apostle Peter, and he explains it. But debauchery is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3. He said, For time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. What he's saying is that this is the lifestyle of a Gentile. What is it? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, Orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. It sounds like spring break in Miami or Las Vegas. 
He said, with respect to this, they are surprised for you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. The lifestyle that the prodigal son wanted was debauchery. So what exactly is debauchery? Drinking, sensuality, orgies, parties. So when Jesus Christ told us this parable of the prodigal son, he was alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Look at Deuteronomy 21. And now this is connected. Transport again. Teleport there. Deuteronomy 21 verse 18. There's a rule that if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Having the lifestyle of a glutton and a drunkard is the same as debauchery. This guy is not 10 years old. This is not a small child. This is a grown-up man who's still drunkard and glutton. He doesn't want to work. He just drinks all day. Debauchery. In verse 21, it says, Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, so you shall purge evil from among your midst. All Israel shall hear and fear. This is evil, debauchery. So think of the prodigal son. This son is asking his dad, give me my inheritance so I can live a life of debauchery. Are you following this? And what's interesting to me is that this father gave him the inheritance, knowing that he will go to a far country and live a life of debauchery. And I can imagine the son coming back home, you know, Dirty clothes, no sandals, and was repentant. I mean, if I was the father, I would have slapped him on the way home. I mean, you, I gave you inheritance, you spent all of it, and now you're coming back here? If I was the father, I would not have done what the, this father do. The, the father should not have embraced and kissed the son, and this father should have brought him straight to the elders and stoned him to death, if that was me. But the good thing is, it's not me. But you know what happened? Because the father in the story is not us. The father in the story is the metaphor of God the Father. He's not an ordinary father. He's not just some father. He's God our Father. And his father and this our father embraced and kissed him. Put sandals on him accepted him back. This is God our Father. This God our Father, every time we run away, every time we sin, every time we make mistakes, God our Father is ready and anticipating our return. That is who he is. He will not just wait for us. He will run towards us and give us a kiss of peace. You see, this prodigal son went to a faraway land to live in the life of debauchery. And you might be thinking, what kind of father would give it to a son like that? So I'm thinking in reflection, if God knows that we will also do this, why does God allow us to live a life of debauchery sometimes? Why does God allow us as his children to live the way we want? If the father knows what his son will do, why would he give him his inheritance? There's one reason I can think of and this goes across the board. 
it is this. It is demonstrate that we, in our sinful, selfish, independent nature, are really sons of the devil. We want to do what the devil wants. We want to follow the will of the devil, not the will of God. You shall know them by the fruits, like father, like son. But if there's anything that we can learn from this prodigal son story is this. Real sons come home. They would realize. They will realize who they really are and they will come home. That's why in the story, when the prodigal son came back home, the father gave him a ring, gave him sandals, gave him a robe. Now remember this story about the prodigal son. It's the story of Jacob. Now teleport back again to the Old Testament. Jacob had 12 sons. His favorite son is Joseph. Joseph went to Egypt. He became successful. And when Pharaoh discovered his talent for prophecy, Pharaoh recognized him. This is what he did. Genesis chapter 41. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, put it in Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot. What this means is that, in other words, Jesus, Joseph was elevated to the status of a son, like an heir to the throne. So if we read the story of the prodigal son and Joseph side by side, you see that the father, when he kissed the son and put robe in his son and put a ring on his son and sandals on his son, he's elevating the son back to his original status, a son, an heir, legitimate heir of the father. And maybe your reaction would be just like me. You know, when I first read this, I was like, this is unfair. I mean, just like that, you spend everything and you come back and just like that, it sounds unfair. In fact, the elder brother saw all of this and he said, this, dad, this is not fair. I mean, he's already spent. Why are you reinstating him to be his son? That means if he becomes a son again, you will have to give him inheritance again. And that's going to be my portion. That is so unfair. To the, to the elder brother, he doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve second chance. You see, our father would not think twice. When we come home, the prettiest sight to see for God our father is us coming back home repentant. It doesn't matter where you went. It doesn't matter how you have become. It doesn't matter how you've fallen. What he sees is your heart that is repentant. And this is not something that the older brother sees. The old, older brother is like me, so I'm going to have to make a confession. Sometimes this is what I feel. And maybe sometimes you can relate to me. Sometimes this is what I feel. Like an older brother, it feels like it's unfair because you see, we work hard to please God. We make sure that we walk in his ways. We make sure that we follow God. You have a checklist. You pray every day. You fast at least every six months or once a month. You go to church every Sunday. You give to the church. You help the needy and so on and so forth. You have all these checklists and you're making sure you're following God. And I feel sometimes and when I'm doing this, I'm missing out. I mean, I'm here every Sunday. I should be going to Las Vegas sometimes and maybe do the cling cling and maybe win $1 million. Or maybe sometimes I should go to Miami during spring break. I mean, just, you know, enjoy. Do you feel like you are missing out because you are doing the will of the Father? And you see, this guy just walks in the church. 
I know this guy. I saw him in Miami. I saw him is doing his lifestyle, his Gentile lifestyle. And all he has to do is to pray, repent, and accept Jesus. And that's it. He's forgiven. Do you feel that it's unfair? See, the older brother feels it's unfair. And sometimes I feel like I'm an older brother. But see, the heart of God is always forgiving to his children. That is God our Father who never betrays us, who never abandons us. When I realized that I've been acting and feeling like an older brother, I also realized that I don't understand that God is our Father. The reason why I, I feel it's unfair is because I don't understand that God is our Father. At the end of the day, I just see God as my boss. At the end of the day, I just see God, you know, as my supervisor. I'm going to have, I'm going to have this checklist, tasks that I will have to, to give to him. At the end of the day, I would say, Lord, I have, I've done everything, one to ten. I'm good. Remember the, the rich guy who came to Jesus? He said, I've been doing all these things. I've been following the law. What else should I do? He's talk, thinking about checklist. He's thinking about, the, you know, the, in the line of the older son. He wants to please the father, but he was doing the checklist. He's not enjoying it. I think sometimes we have to check ourselves about the people who come and is given a second chance. Is it God is a God of second chances. Beloved, I want you to start looking as God as our Father. Someone who we want to please. We're doing what is right. We're doing the will of the Father. We're praying that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not because I am forced to do it. It's because I want to do it. I want to please God as my Father. My challenge is this. Dare to call him Father. Dare to speak boldly to him as a father. Dare to call him Abba. Let your heart cry out because in front of him, we are just small children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, our Father, who art in heaven. Thank you for the privilege of calling you our Father. Now, we may not have realized this, you may be to us an all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty, transcendent God and holy, but you are also our Father. Thank you for Jesus who taught us this privilege that we can call you our Father, that this is an intimate way to call you and relate to you. And Father, we confess that sometimes we don't know what to say in our prayer. So the Word of God says sometimes when we run out of words, with our hearts cry, Abba, Father. It's because we long for you. It's because we long for your touch. Father, we are naked before you. We cannot hide anything. We cannot boast and brag about the things that we do for you. But thank you because we are in your family. We are in your household. And like the older brother, Father, I pray that you will give us the heart of humility. Allow us to see how you love us, that everything that you have is ours. And sometimes when we don't get what we pray for, sometimes when we pray for so desperately about something that we wanted and you don't give it to us, I pray, Father, that you will allow understanding. That instead of confusion, I pray that you will allow us 
to be comforted by your love and your mercy and your wisdom because you know better than us. You are our Father and we declare this to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.